What is one of the top reasons people do not believe in God? It's known as the problem of evil. If God is good, why do bad things happen? This is Evidence and Answers with author, speaker, and Christian apologist, Pat Zuckerman. This is a radio program that deals head-on with the most pressing questions people ask and gives reasons for faith in Christ. Today, Pat's guest is the world-renowned scholar N.T. Wright. Bishop N.T. Wright is one of the most respected scholars on the historical Jesus and the resurrection of Christ. Today, he addresses the problem of evil and suffering. While you're listening, please visit our website, evidenceandanswers.org, for outstanding resources, articles, and interviews that will equip you to know what you believe and why you believe it. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Now, here's Pat Zuckerman. Yes, thanks, Kevin. We're talking today with Bishop Tom Wright, the Bishop of Durham, a New Testament scholar, and he's written several wonderful books defending the resurrection of Jesus Christ, one of the best books out there. And he's got a new book out that we'll be talking about today, Evil and the Justice of God. Well, Bishop Wright, welcome. Welcome Thank to the show. Thank you very much. Good to be with you. Well, Dr. Wright, you list here in your book three ways in which we face evil today, to ignore or in surprise or in an immature manner. Explain this for us. Well, it seems to me, looking at what's happened politically over the last few years, that uh, many people in Western society, certainly in my own country, were really thinking that we in the Western world had got the world sorted out, that we were quite a nice society, and that we had good democracy and good modern technology and so on, and that if there were problems in the world, they were a long way away. And then with September the 11th in your country, and then when we had our own equivalent on July the 7th last year, um, suddenly our leaders are saying to themselves, oh my goodness, there is this thing called evil, and it's, uh, it's actually more powerful than we thought. And what on earth are we going to do? And so we'd ignored it before then, and then suddenly we lurched towards what seems to be a very immature reaction, which is to say, goodness, if there's evil out there, what we better do is go and kill the bad guys, and then it'll be all right, won't it? And that, that, is, that is a very immature reaction, because it fails to see where the roots of the evil lie. And indeed, that evil is not a matter of them out there as opposed to us over here, but evil ultimately is something that resides in each human society, in each human heart. And the line between good and evil isn't between us and them. It's right down the middle of each of us. You also stated in your book, and you make a very good point, that we have the idea that if we can bring Western democracy to every part of the world, that indeed we would, that would be one of the answers to the problem of evil. Yes. Well, Western democracy, I do think, is a great good and a great gift, and it is always better to decide the future of how we want to run a government by discussion, public debate, and voting, and f- trying to achieve consensus, than by fighting and killing and, and, uh, and making war on each other. However, the way our Western democracy currently works is a bit creaky, frankly. Um, in my country, at least, Um, there's remarkably few people who vote in elections, however much the television tries to drum us up to get out there and vote. An awful lot of people are very cynical about the political process because they are inclined to think that, well, we'll vote in the other lot this time, but actually they won't really be very different from the ones we just had. And... uh, Uh, I know that may be different in some parts of the world where you can really achieve change through the ballot box, but people are fairly cynical about it now, and particularly when they see that big business interests and big money is going into the democratic process, and it looks rather like a sophisticated modern version of what used to happen 200 years ago when people went out and shamelessly bought votes. So that I think if we want to say, yes, let's export Western democracy, it's incumbent upon us to say, actually, we're not doing it terribly well right now. Let's think about how we could do it better. Now, give us a brief description of what you call post-modernity, and then how has post-modernity addressed the problem of evil? 
Well, I think what postmodernity has done um, overall is to say to the modern world, which is what we've been living in for the last couple hundred years, um, you're not so smart as you thought you were. Um, the great story of progress, which you've been telling all about how the world has been getting better and better and, and improving and, and so on, um, really has been a cover for the advance of Western power so that at the end of that great story, what's happened is that most of the money resides in North America and Western Europe and uh, most of the goods in the world seem to flow this way and we don't seem to mind too much that a large number of other people in the world are extremely badly off and indeed are in debt to us and and uh, post-modernity is a way of saying your big stories of progress and enlightenment are simply a cover for your own um, political, financial, and so on, ambitions, and that we're going to unmask that and dethrone your, your ideals, which have been self-serving. Now, postmodernity is an analysis. It's like a diagnosis of a disease. It doesn't yet give you the treatment. And that's why I think we need to listen to, to what people in postmodernity are saying. But we've got to go out on beyond that to say, is there anything we can do? Or do we just have to throw our hands up in horror and say, well, that's the way the world is, and we don't like it, but we can't help it. And I think as a Christian, I want to say, no, um, Jesus is Lord of this world, and he has taken all the bad that is there. And this is what the center of my book is about, and has ultimately dealt with it in his crucifixion, in his death, and that it is then the, the God's gift to the world world to sort out the problem of evil and to address it in the power of the Spirit. You know, one thing I see is this uh, whole idea of the postmodern relativism. How has that contributed uh, to addressing the problem of evil in a good or bad way? Well, the, the danger with relativism is that you just shrug your shoulders and say, well, one person's ideal is as good as another's, so if the Muslims um, or the, the particular type of Muslims, think that it is their duty to fly planes into buildings, then who are we to object? Now, of course, very few people would actually say that, but ultimately the relativist would say, um, well, their idea of good and evil may be just as good as ours, so um, who cares? And relativism, frankly, is a modern Western luxury. Um, it, it's, it's something you can only really embrace when you feel fairly secure in your own system and in your own place. As soon as people feel insecure, then they start um, actually going for some much tougher um, uh, philosophies which really do exclude certain other options. Now, before we go on, explain, define for us what is evil and why is it a problem in Christian theism? Well, um, evil, there are all sorts of philosophical and theological analyses of it. Evil is basically what happens when something good ought to be in place and isn't. Evil is the absence of good or the deprivation of good. Um, if you're just to give a silly example, if you're bicycling along a road and a pothole suddenly appears in front of you um, where there should be a bit of road, there's thin air, there's nothing there, but the nothing is a problem because there should be a something and you're going to come crashing down off your bicycle. And evil is rather like that, that the, the point where human beings ought to be reflecting the image of the good and wise and loving creator God, they're not doing it. They're simply turning away and they're failing to be the stewards of creation and people who bring love and forgiveness and peace to the world and instead producing the moral equivalent of a black hole. So that's, I mean, that's, that's what, uh, what happens when evil is, is afoot. But then when that happens, evil then gathers momentum and uh, gets, a, uh, gets on a roll. And so it sort of snowballs that one thing leads to another. And so you get a kind of superhuman um, sense of evil, which is more than the sum total of individual human wrongdoings. I mean, we all think back, and it's the standard example, to 
Hitler and the Holocaust and the Nazi movement and so on, um, that, that actually um, no one human being, not Adolf Hitler nor anyone, was singly responsible for all the evil that was going on. It was an entire system of ideology, of idolatry, which enabled great wickedness to occur. So evil is what happens when good is not, is not being done that should be done, but evil can, as it were, take on a life of its own and become extremely powerful and virulent and dangerous. Now, how have the other worldviews, such as pantheism and atheism, addressed the issue of evil? Right. Well, atheism, of course, doesn't have a problem of evil. It has a problem of good, because if there is no God, if everything is random, then why is there justice? Why is there beauty? Why is there kindness? Why is there generosity? You can't easily explain all of that in terms simply of, the, you know, Richard Dawkins' selfish genes or whatever. No doubt he'll have a go, but uh, uh, the atheist does have a real problem about the existence of good uh, and so on. Um, for pantheism, it's a real problem because if God is in everything and everything is in God, then whatever happens has a sort of divinity about it. So you just have to say, well, if there is a God, he seems to be careless about good and evil because what we call good and evil are simply aspects of this divine world. And so in the ancient world, and sadly sometimes in the modern, if somebody is a serious pantheist and then really doesn't like the way things are going, the answer is to commit suicide. Um, and some of the ancient pantheists were quite clear about this. You don't like it, you're free to leave. You know, um, So the pantheist can't really have a good analysis of evil, whereas for a Jew or a Christian or indeed a Muslim, if you believe that there is a good God who made the world, then if there's something wrong with the world, it is God's business to sort it out. And the question is, how does God do that? And the answer in those three religions is something to do with that God shares the task of that with his people. And in Christianity, that is focused on Jesus Christ. And Christians believe that in Jesus, God has dealt with the evil once and for all in order to launch his project of new creation. Now, we as Christians believe we have the best answer in addressing the problem of evil. But you warn in your book, you warn Christians not to have a simplistic explanation of evil. What yeah. do you mean by that? Well, I, I have heard some Christians say, for instance, well, God allows evil because if there's evil in the world, it gives virtue a chance to shine all the more brightly. I've even heard one Christian professor say um, that God allowed the Holocaust because it put um, some of the Germans and the Jews and others in the position of having to exercise great moral courage so they were able to grow morally um, in, in um, how they dealt with that horror. Now, I, I find that solution, so-called, utterly abhorrent. I, I just cannot begin to see how that could be a Christian analysis. Um, and I think there's truth to the idea that if you think you've explained evil, why it's there and what to do about it, um, then uh, you just shows you haven't really understood it yet, that it is part of the point of evil, that it is irrational and absurd, and to produce a rational understanding of it is, is to belittle the problem. So as Christians, we should not be afraid to say sometimes we don't know why this tragedy well, or so-and-so happened. Absolutely, and it's very interesting that in the Bible, we are never told uh, why evil is there. What we are told is that God has launched a project through first the Jewish people and then reaching its climax in Jesus um, to deal with evil, to take it ultimately upon himself. That the whole story of the Old Testament is about God wrestling through his people with the problem of evil, both in the world at large and even within his own people, and that that story reaches its culmination when Jesus of Nazareth, as the Messiah, dies on the cross to complete that project, that story of how God is addressing and dealing with evil.
Now walk us through briefly how in the Old Testament God was dealing with the entrance of evil into his creation. Well, it's very interesting. In the book of Genesis, um, and many people don't read it like this because we often only read a chapter at a time and we forget how the whole story is going. But in the book of Genesis, you start off with chapters 1 to 3, which talk about the good creation and then the intrusion of evil into the world. And then that story rumbles on to chapter 11, where you get the Tower of Babel, where humankind has become very evil and proud and arrogant and think that they can sort out the world over against God. And God puts a stop to all that, and instead, in chapter 12, calls Abraham. And he says, Abraham, in you and in your family, all the families of the earth will be blessed. In other words, this is the launching of the project which is going to solve the problem as it's outlined in chapters 1 to 11. And uh, as a start of the solving of the problems of the world, God promises to Abraham this particular strip of territory, the land we call the Holy Land. And that goes on through, as a sort of hint like a new Eden, a new garden, a new beginning, a new Genesis. Um, and so when later on we get the question of the exile from the land, it shows that what's happened is that the people who are bearing the solution have become part of the problem, which is a, a very serious matter. And the New Testament picks that up and says, yes, and all that gets funneled down onto Jesus Christ, and he takes the full weight of that on, on himself. So some of the great passages in the Old Testament, like Isaiah chapters 40 to 55, and like the whole book of Daniel, are about the way God is dealing with the political evil in the world, with the moral evil, with the spiritual evil, with evil in the wider pagan world, with evil within the Jewish world, and all of those are stories which lead the eye forwards and end in the Old Testament with a question mark. And the New Testament says, here's the answer to this question mark. It all comes together in Jesus. Now, I think one of the interesting things you point out in your book is that God just doesn't simply eliminate evil or give easy answers, but it appears that God works with his people through the problem of evil and even experience some pain in himself well, uh, through yes. this whole process. Um, that, that's, I mean... The, the idea of God experiencing pain has seemed to many theologians very odd, and yet there does seem to be something going on there. If you hold a theology of the Trinity, which I certainly do, then um, when you see Jesus on the cross saying, my God, why did you abandon me? There is a sense of Jesus as himself, the incarnate Son of God, nevertheless being abandoned by or, or alienated from the Father, which is an alienation that they both suffer. And uh, there are some wonderful poems and hymns which come up in the Christian tradition is one which we often sing which has a line and when human hearts are breaking under sorrow's iron rod then they find that self-same aching deep within the heart of God and I know that some people have said that that is actually a projection of our romantic um, uh, sort of suffering hero kind of imagery onto God and that God is above all that. But I think I want to say with some of the early Christian fathers that we have to tell two stories about God, one in which God really does feel the pain of the world and know it in himself, and the other in which God remains the good, wise creator who celebrates the goodness of his world um, and who sends his son to, to, to share its pain. And somehow we Christians have told those stories. We haven't always told them very well, but uh, the answer partly is that God is more mysterious than any of our theories, but that God knows and loves and is with us and is healing his world. That, that's, that's at the heart of it. Bishop Wright, uh, we've often heard that philosophers of religion in particular no longer argue the problem of evil, particularly as an evidence against the existence of God. 
Is that true in, in your survey? And uh, it still hurts, even if we have shown that it can't disprove God. Yeah, um, it, it depends what I mean by proving and disproving God. You see, these discussions really grow out of a particular way of talking about God, which was characteristic of the 18th century, where a lot of today's present ways of doing it began. And many people in the 18th century thought that you could prove the existence of God by simply looking at the order of the natural world and the sun and the moon and the stars and uh, what goes on inside human brains, etc. They said, look at all of that and you'll see that there is a good God and he's the father of Jesus and there we are. And what happened in 1755 with the Lisbon earthquake, which is one of the most terrible disasters ever to hit mainland Europe, was that a lot of people in Western Europe thought, oh my goodness, life is a lot more complicated than we thought. How can there be a good God if this happens. But they're still thinking in terms of a God who is outside the process, uh, like a deist God who's a long way away, who ought to be running the show and now doesn't seem to be doing it as well as we thought he was. The New Testament approaches the whole thing quite differently. The New Testament says that God made the world and runs the world in and through and for Jesus Christ, which means that we're not just talking about a distant God who is supposed to be the sort of CEO of the Cosmos, Inc. Uh, What we're talking about is a God who is known in and through his second person, Jesus, who has made the world and is running the world through Jesus. That means already that God is involved with the process so that the whole philosophical problem of evil commonly conceived as, you know, if God was running the world, then why is there evil, really is too simple and actually is a sub-Christian way of approaching the problem. And I was debating with a philosopher at the conference that I am at the moment, um, a philosopher of religion from Notre Dame, um, who actually quite rightly said it looks as though Tom Wright is against the whole project of theodicy, that is the attempt to argue that that, that God is in fact in the right and that evil isn't so much of a problem. And I, I think that's right. I think that the philosophers have rather... Uh, shrunk the problem into purely one of ideas when in fact as we know the problem of evil has to do with politics it has to do with morals it has to do ultimately with the cross of jesus we need all those dimensions and uh, i think the philosophers need to take that on board you know dr wright one of the things that i believe is that really in the christian worldview it offers the greatest message of hope uh, for those who are struggling with the whole problem of evil and who've experienced the evil would you agree with that Oh, yes. Um, And I think uh, all of us, sooner or later, have to come face to face with the question of evil. And that's the point when we are driven to the foot of the cross. And uh, as all Christians in all traditions know when they're at their best, um, the cross is where, even if we can't explain it, we find the love of God coming and meeting us where we are, taking the full force of all the pain and shame and sin in the world on God's self. And so making a way through um, and enabling us to to find the new life which then comes with with Easter. That I find to be unique in the Christian message amongst all the world religions, that the God of the universe would enter into his creation and suffer the humiliation and death death which he did upon the cross and then rise from the dead victorious. and as C.S. Lewis says in Mere Christianity, um, in terms of world religions, this is so odd that you can't imagine anyone just making it up. It's, it's really quite peculiar to think of a God who would do that sort of a thing. And many religions find it um, shocking and, and uh, uh, offensive to imagine God doing that. And certainly Islam is very clear. For Islam, there is one God and he does not have a son. 
And if he did, that son would certainly not suffer um, because that would be undignified and completely wrong for a divine being to do. So that there is a big shock at the heart of the Christian message. Um, at the same time, of course, in many pagan religions, there were dying and rising mythological gods, corn kings and so on, who were thought to die in scare quotes um, with the sowing of the crops and then to rise again in scare quotes when the crops came up in the spring. And, uh, you know, so that there are foreshadowings of this idea of dying and rising in many other religions. But the extraordinary and unique thing about Christianity is that it says it did actually happen once and that uh, and that, that is one-off and unrepeatable and that that was where the whole thing came together. Bishop Wright, as we end our time together, I'd like to take a, a quick side road. Uh, we often hear of the demise of Christianity in the UK and the rise of Islam. What do you have to report? Well, the last census that was done in the UK was about three years ago, and uh, the statistics that came out then were that when people ticked the boxes on the question of religion, um, there were 72% of the population of the UK who said that they were Christians, and that the highest other religion was Islam with 2.7%. And then there were the atheists and agnostics, I think, accounted for about 10 or 12%, and then the rest were somewhere in between there. Um, and so the difference between 72% and 2.7% is pretty vast. Now, of course, a lot of that uh, Muslim population actually regularly attend the mosque and are active in their Muslim faith, whereas the vast majority of that 72% who call themselves Christians do not attend church and uh, do not visibly practice the Christian faith really in any outward way that one can see. Um, but it's still clear that the vast majority of people, nearly three quarters of people in the UK, think of themselves as Christians, even if we bishops and clergy and so on look at them and say, well, if you're Christians, why aren't you saying your prayers? Where were you on Sunday morning, etc.? Um, and that's that's our problem. So it isn't so much that we've we've shrunk Christianity and that Islam or anything else has risen to take its place. What we've got is a big vacuum of puzzlement in our society of people who maybe their grandparents used to be practicing church people, but they've long since given it up. Don't see why they should take it up, but they haven't really taken anything else up either in, the, in most cases. Well, Bishop Tom, as we close, you talked about not only must we address the philosophical problem of evil, but also the practical side of giving practical advice to those who are going through some difficult times. What would you say to the person who's experiencing evil in their life now? I would say that the, uh, the key to it all is that in the death of Jesus, God has not only given forgiveness to all those who seek it and turn to him, but he's given forgiveness as the way of life by which we can learn to live together in a way which really does defeat evil. You see, when you refuse to forgive someone, or when uh, a larger entity, a nation or whatever, refuses to forgive, then you keep evil and hatred in circulation. But when you forgive, what you say is God has dealt with evil in the death of Jesus. Why should I hang on to it? And so what we have to do in our personal lives is to discover the difference between, uh, between justice, which is a great good, and revenge, which is a great evil, and between appeasement, which is a great evil, and forgiveness, which is a great good. And the thing we have to work at, and I know it's difficult, but with the cross of Jesus in full view, we can do it. The thing we have to work at is to bring together the passion for justice and the longing to forgive. And when we can work at that, we're in for a healthier world all around. 
Thank you, Dr. Wright, for being with us. His book is Evil and the Justice of God by InnerVarsity Press. Dr. Wright, thanks for being with us. Thank you very much. God bless you. We want to thank you so much for listening to Evidence and Answers with Pat Zuckerin on this timely topic and remind you that you can get this entire series at our website, evidenceandanswers.org. That's evidenceandanswers.org. You'll find some of the best resources on presenting and defending your faith in Christ to an increasingly skeptical world at evidenceandanswers.org. World religions, atheism, the cults, the occult, apologetics, scientific and philosophical arguments for the existence of God, creation and evolution, the reliability of the Bible, archaeology and history, and the end times, to name but just a few. You'll find Pat Zuckerman's interviews with leading scholars and speakers on the most crucial issues facing the church and the world. Go to evidenceandanswers.org and be equipped. Evidence and Answers is supported by you, the listener, who appreciates a program that gives good answers to good questions. Our calling is to do what the Apostle Paul did on Mars Hill in Athens. He presented and defended the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we'll help you do the same by the grace of God. Just go to evidenceandanswers.org and any gift or purchase of resources will be a tremendous encouragement to us. And remember that this entire series is available at evidenceandanswers.org. God bless and thanks so much for listening.